Hello, everyone. In this episode, we had on Chris Bailey, a Canadian author and productivity consultant. He's the author of two best-selling books, The Productivity Project and Hyperfocus, and just released his third book, How to Calm Your Mind, Finding Presence and Productivity in Anxious Times. Chris is a goldmine of personal experience and science-backed information on how to live a focused, productive, and calm life. You can tell he really practices what he preaches, and it was a really cool chat, not just about how to accomplish more in less time, but how to have a calm mind while doing so, and enjoy life and your accomplishments along the way, not just getting caught up in doing more more, more. I feel like uh, most real estate investors I've met in life, including myself, are type A individuals. And so I think Chris's message really hits home and is needed for people like us who are constantly hustling. If you like this type of discussion from this podcast about mindset, accomplishing goals, achieving balance, health and wellness, and you love learning about real estate investing, the economy, hard assets, central banking, everything in between, then you are seriously missing out by not being on the Rockstar Inner Circle weekly newsletter list. I really mean that. Tom's been writing this weekly newsletter for almost 14 years now, and I swear in this past year, he's taken it to a new level. It's the only email newsletter I haven't unsubscribed from a few months after being on the list because every week I get a simplified, distilled version in plain English of what's happening in the economy and real estate market, why it's happening, and what to do about it. This thing's basically become Tom and Nick's weekly blog, where they're sharing their thoughts on the economy, the, the market, Bitcoin, interest rate moves, mindset secrets to their success, and all kinds of personal stories about running Rockstar, being an investor, and all the crazy adventures they go on. I know I work with Rockstar now, so it probably seems like I have a bias, but I started out as a Rockstar member, and I'm still a super fan of the info that we put out, especially this weekly email. It's free to join the list. We never send spam ever. You can go to rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash newsletter to sign up. I promise you won't regret it. We get more great feedback on this weekly newsletter than almost anything else we put out. So you can go to rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash newsletter if you want to check it out and join the list. With that, Chris Bailey, everyone. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, so we are live with Chris Bailey, productivity expert, uh, life maverick, oh. maybe some would call him. Oh. Uh, uh, a guy who's definitely living life on his own terms. I heard Chris on another podcast and he was talking about productivity tips and specifically how to not burn out or what to do if you are burnout, you know, what is burnout, all the definitions behind it. And I thought Chris had a lot of cool stuff to say. And so I reached out to book him on the podcast and then I realized he's Canadian. He's from Kingston and now living in Ottawa, which made me like him even more. So I'm excited to have him on today to talk about his personal journey, how he's built a life that's on his own terms. He's a best-selling author now of three books and uh, a productivity consultant and stuff. I'll let you get into your, your whole thing here, Chris. Um, but I also obviously want to dive into all your key research and findings and all the work you've done, I think over the past decade into productivity and, and really how to get more shit done. So. Yeah. So Chris, if you don't mind a quick intro to our audience of who you are and how you got to be, what you do now and how you got to be where you are today, please. Yes. Well, thank you, sir, for having me on. Would you have me on the pod if I wasn't Canadian? That's the question. I would have, but uh, I wouldn't have been as excited about it. No, no, it wouldn't be as well. I, yeah. There's a shared, in, there's a shared brotherhood here already, right? There is, there is. Um, and uh, before hopping on the horn with you today, I was just taking a little lovely stroll along the Rideau canal. What's more Canadian than that? Love it. Uh, but my, my story is essentially, I, I feel like the luckiest person in the world. Cause every day I get to just 
be a gigantic nerd about productivity. I, I love pouring over research. Uh, some people have normal interests like sports, real estate, that sort of thing. But for some reason, I've always been obsessed with this idea of just using what limited time we have every day to accomplish more. And so my days look like just pouring over academic journal articles about subjects like productivity, about focus, about calm, about the opposite of productivity, right? Things like burnout, anxiety, things that compromise our productivity and allow us to work smarter. And my journey started, like you were saying, about a decade ago, this coming May, uh, will be a decade since I started this, where I graduated from uh, Carleton University here in Ottawa, actually, uh, with a few full-time job offers. But I thought if there's ever a time to do something that I find meaningful, that, you know, on my own terms, as, as you could say, uh, it was then. So I declined the job offers straight out of university and poured over as much of the productivity advice out there as I possibly could. Um, it, it was just a fascination of mine and I couldn't imagine not doing it. And that turned into a following online that turned into a first book, which is called the productivity project. People connected with that approach of being vulnerable and trying to fix my own problems. In addition to uh, looking at what actually works out there, uh, this research-based approach. And so I wrote another book called hyperfocus. And now uh, I have a third book called how to calm your mind, which I think is my best one yet about the productivity benefits of calm especially when we're in such a, an anxious, ever-changing time. And my whole philosophy with productivity is it's about deliberateness. It's about intentionality. And I've been fortunate that this work has found an audience. The, the books are out in 35 languages. There's been a great reception. I think, I feel like I'm tooting my own horn here a little bit, but I, I think because of the fact that I'm not afraid of being vulnerable and uh, trying to fix my own problems. And ultimately, I write these books very incredibly selfishly. I write them for myself as manuals to refer back to later on if I'm in a situation where I can't focus or can't seem to find calm or productivity. And so that's that's my story. Awesome, man. Well, it's interesting because your career is researching and communicating your findings about productivity. And it sounds like also using yourself as a human productivity experiment. Yeah. But in the meantime, you're, you're, it's like productivity exception because your, your <laughs> career is about productivity, but you're yeah. trying to be more productive. It's like, so when you started this productivity yeah. project, what were you productive doing? Just learning about productivity? Yeah, it's so true. Well, the the first thing I started tracking was word counts, just pure pure output and how uh how much I was able to create. Uh and and then over time I started you know, I think there's a lot of different measurements for productivity uh, out there. And, and the way that I like to measure my own productivity and the way that I encourage everybody to measure their productivity is, you know, it, it ultimately comes down to one thing. And that one thing is intentionality. You know, we don't become more productive, especially when we're surrounded by so much information, so many distractions, um, we don't become more productive by doing more, 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 faster, faster, faster. Uh, we become more productive by doing the right things uh, deliberately and with an intentionality behind it. But yeah, it was a bit, definitely a bit circular at, at the beginning. Uh, these days, I do a lot of training on productivity, bringing this research down to earth. Uh, I do a lot of coaching on productivity. So people who, uh, who need advice in their own situation 
situations and, you know, bring, bring things down to earth that way. And of course the, the books are the main output now as well. Why are we so focused on productivity in the first place? Why does productivity even matter? What is the, like, why yeah. are we so obsessed with this idea? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it's because we all value progress. You know, there's something deeply embedded within us where we evolve to survive through today because we value progress. And this can help us. It, it, it actually has helped us quite a bit over the course of human history because we made tools out of rocks and then we made fire and then better tools. And then we moved to agrarian uh, economies and then manufacturing economies and information economies, always seeking this progress and building upon the tools and the knowledge that we've had before. Um, and so I think that that's ultimately it. Um, you know, I think progress is an interesting thing to value because it can produce a lot of success. If we value success by traditional measures, we always want to be accumulating more and accomplishing more. I think, you know, there is kind of a tipping point where value overvaluing progress turns into a sort of productive misery where we're not able to enjoy the fruits of what we accomplish. But I think it's, it's so ingrained within us that actually the same things that led us to evolve, to survive through to today, uh, are what lead us to value productivity. And, uh, you know, values might seem like a wishy-washy kind of idea, but there's an actual science behind them where there are essentially 10 basic fundamental human values that we all value to some degree. Uh, everything from achievement to power to universalism to benevolence to hedonism to stimulation to security. You know, there's a, essentially 10 basic fundamental human values that we all differ on a little bit, but value seems to be a progress or, you know, this value of progress seems to be something that we all do share that's ingrained within us. Probably the same, you know, the same reason that we're afraid to die is the same reason that we value growth and productivity. And so it's fascinating how this, this value of progress manifests in so many different areas of our life, uh, including with our work and with our success. That was a great answer. And sorry, what, what do you think the connection is between uh, our fear of death and the, mm. and the growth and progress just, just on that point there? Well, we never want things to end. We always mm. want to keep building upon what we have, yeah. uh, never letting go of it. And, uh, you know, that's a bit of a recipe for misery too, because, you know, we, we kind of have to, value growth without becoming attached to the results of our growth. I think, you know, in a way I study a lot of research on happiness too. And I think happiness is really nothing more than coming term to terms with how things change around us. And so it definitely is a balance between this striving and this savoring, but it really is that underlying value of progress, in my opinion. Yeah. It feels like most people lean towards the striving spectrum where, um, it's yeah. just constantly looking to strive to do more and more and more versus yeah. the savoring. I don't know too many people just sitting around savoring the past, you know, the old glory days, everyone seems to be just <laughs> busy, busy, busy trying to do more and more and more. Yeah. Well, savoring is a science in and of itself. And I think at a certain point you have to ask yourself, why am I striving if I'm not enjoying it? You know, if, if you don't enjoy the fruits of your accomplishments, what's the point? of your accomplishments. Mm -hmm. What's so the point of building, you know, 
let's say of 500 doors or something, you know, what's the point of building up to a point of 500 doors if you're miserable the whole time. And it's interesting. There's actually a science behind this idea of savoring and enjoying our lives. Um, you know, savoring is, is interesting because the more we are driven to acquire more, you know, it's, it's called an acquisition mentality in the research. And, the research shows that because of the brain networks that are activated in our mind uh, when we're striving or also when we stimulate our mind, these networks are actually anti-correlated with the networks, the reverse correlate. So when one network is activated, the other isn't. They're reverse correlated with the networks that are active when we're actually enjoying our life, when we're savoring our life. And so savoring, there's a science behind it. Savoring is the process of converting a positive experience into a positive emotion. And so we all have these great moments in our life that we don't enjoy, right? The, think of the the incredible meals that you just kind of scarf down on the couch watching episodes of something, right? Or think of you know the 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 conversations with loved ones that uh, should be meaningful but aren't because we can't get something else off our mind like work or we're distracted by something as simple as our phone, something as complex as the internal dialogue that exists within the depths of our mind. You know, it's interesting, the research on savoring this process of converting positive experiences into positive emotions um, shows that women are better at it than men and wealthier people are worse at, at it than people who are considered uh, less well off. And so it's something that we actually have to actively combat against because, you know, we, we tell ourselves a story that we'll enjoy the fruits of our accomplishments later on, maybe someday when we retire or, you know, whatever, <laughs> when we have more time, when our business runs itself, when we can get everything into, into a state of automation where it, it kind of is its own self-fulfilling system. But that's, at the end of the day, just a story. Cause you could die. I don't know why I keep mentioning death, but it, you know, you could die tomorrow. And then the amount of joy you've accumulated in your life might be close to zero if you don't enjoy things along the way, but we have to luxuriate in experiences. We have to marvel at experiences. We have to savor things. One simple way, because I'm a fan of bringing things down to that tactical level, is just keeping a, a savor list. You know, especially if you're fine, if you find that you're somebody who can't really enjoy uh, the the good things in life, uh, savoring actually is a skill that we can get better at. And the fascinating thing, actually, is when we strive for more accomplishment, that striving deactivates the networks in our brain that are active when we're present with something, when we're focused on something and making progress on something and moving things forward. And so ironically, by savoring, we practice this idea of focus and presence with whatever it is that we're doing. It's this fascinating phenomenon where ultimately the pursuit of more accomplishment can lead us to become less accomplished by making us less focused and present, but savoring is a way we can counterbalance that. Okay. So let me ask you about this, Chris, a lot of people we work with, um, myself included, a lot of people here at rockstar, the brokerage, we we've built up these real estate portfolios on the side 
because we know that having yeah. good assets and income streams in our life is going to provide us more financial options and a financial fortress really to kind of secure ourselves in our future and allow us to, you know, live life on our terms. You know, yeah. nobody signs up for real estate to become a landlord. They sign up for some greater purpose, whether it's traveling more, being with their family more mm. and time after time, after time, we all get caught up in, okay, you know, one more house or this, or I need to build this business because of this. But then in reality, you're also losing your time, but sometimes, yeah. so it's this weird paradox where to create more time and space and options in your life, you might have to get this side hustle of buying rental properties and managing yeah. your portfolio on the side while you also have a full-time job and you have your kids and, and it's all so much. And, and now you're anxious and some guy like you yeah. comes out with the book, here's how to calm your mind. But it's like, how can I calm my mind? I'm trying to do this. That so that so one day I can calm on. my mind. It's just craziness. So then how, how do we balance all this stuff out? Because on the other side of maybe building mm -hmm. up that rental portfolio or that business really could be your dream life. Yeah. But as long as you can maybe step back and catch yourself and be, and like you said, savor it, mm -hmm. but, but that transition period, how do we balance that? Yeah. That's such a good question because, you know, sometimes we have to be unbalanced in order to, uh, savor more in the long run. But I, I think, you know, it's ultimately over the longer arc of time, that's when we want to maximize the amount of savoring in our life, uh, as well as the amount of accomplishment in our life. You know, I, I, the last thing I'm going to do here is rail against accomplishment and achievement, especially when that's one of the 10 fundamental human values, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, but I, I think when it comes to the goals that we have, you know, I, I chat with a lot of real estate investors, uh, for some reason, <laughs> I seem to encounter them. You know, we owned a triplex in Kingston before we moved to Ottawa. It's just a, a world that I've been drawn to simply for that reason, because if, if you have that passive, uh, income, what, what an incredible thing to set totally. you up for the future. It's it, it, especially if, um, if you can systematize it, to a point where it doesn't require much time or thought once you build it to a point. Uh, but I, I think it's over the longer arc of time. And, you know, I hear people say, I want to, I, I want 500 doors. I want 250. I, I want, you know, X amount of uh, whatever every year. And it, it, it comes back to goal setting really, where, how do you know you have enough, right? How do you know that, your lifestyle isn't inflating just because you're addicted to this idea of more. And I think that's kind of the, the line that we have to walk where the very idea of more is addictive. Uh, and it's because when we obtain more of something, some currency in our life, we have a lot of different currencies in our life. We have money, we have prestige, we have social status, we have um, all, all these different currencies that by default, we want to maximize when we come into contact with them. But useful goals have an endpoint, you know, a point at which we, when we hit it, a tangible difference is made in our life. Uh, more is not a goal. <laughs> more is not an endpoint. More is a, a fantasy that ends up making us miserable. And so I, I think, you know, there comes a point where striving can cost us in happiness and savoring our lives overall. And so it really is this balance where, you know, we have to zoom out. And I think this is critical where, you know, we may be overinvested in our, uh, in building earlier on in our life. And I think that's 
incredible if that sets us up for a financially independent future. But we need to have an endpoint, you know, a point at which a difference that is tangible is made in our life and where we're not just following more for more's sake. Uh, you know, th this idea of, of pursuing more and accumulating more is built, uh, it's constructed on top of dopamine. You know, dopamine is a, a neurotransmitter that research, it's quite misunderstood. You know, we think of it dopamine as a bad thing, but the fact of the matter is we use dopamine to think logically. We use it to think creatively. Our body uses it for its various um, physiological functions. Uh, but this pursuit of more, you know, when we receive dopamine from our brain, what, what it really is, is a chemical of anticipation of pleasure. So dopamine is thought of as a pleasure chemical, but instead it leads us to feel as though pleasure is almost on the way. <laughs> it's almost here. So when we check Instagram and we get a hit of dopamine, we uh, feel as though pleasure is right around the corner, which propels us to then check our email and get another hit of dopamine because we encounter dopamine whenever we encounter something novel. But this idea of more is also constructed on top of dopamine. Dopamine provides the neurochemical underpinnings of this pursuit of more uh, that can lead us to really never savor and never be present with our lives. And so I think that's, that's the ticket right there is to have a goal that is tangible where you know the difference that will be in your life because you've achieved that goal and to not allow more this idea of more to hijack your mind past that point in time. I, I found this in my own life, in my own success, where, you know, how many book sales are enough? How many, uh, how, how much, uh, you know, yearly, monthly income is enough? Um, and it, it got to the point where I was pursuing more of everything instead of something that made a difference in my own life. And I found that when I went through that reframe, uh, I was much happier because not only did I have a target to hit, but I was also able to balance that striving and savoring in the short run and in the long arc of time as well. Now, some of the stuff you talk about, um, you talk about managing your time, your attention and your energy. Yeah. Now, how do we do that? What are some of the key findings from, from your work in managing those three things specifically? Like if you boil productivity yeah. down, does it come down to those three things? I think, you know, we can visualize a Venn diagram of sorts where one circle is time, one circle is attention, a third circle, because this Venn diagram is three yeah. circles, has energy. And where those time, attention, energy meet in the middle, that is the sweet spot of productivity advice. And not every single piece of productivity advice falls into this Venn diagram of sorts, but the most helpful stuff I have found does, uh, where, you know, I, I think, you know, having a measurement of productivity advice is enormously helpful because some tactics out there make us feel productive, uh, but just make us busier at the same time. We're just, uh, kind of organizing the deck chairs on the Titanic sometimes with a lot of this advice. Uh, but the golden rule with productivity advice is for every minute you spend on it, how much time are you making back? Cause what the hell is the point if you're not making back time, right? You're just consuming productivity porn at that point where this advice that's fun to consume, but doesn't really 
again, lead us to make that progress. It's ultimately progress that we're after um, with, with this productivity advice. And so, you know, there are there are hundreds, thousands of advice that and pieces of advice that falls into this Venn diagram. There's a lot of BS out there too. Uh, and this is something you very quickly find if you try to wade through this pool of productivity advice out there. There's a lot of advice that sounds good. Like, oh, here's how uh, Oprah uh, does her mornings. Well, Oprah is also a billionaire who has many assistants and I'm, I'm imagining people who could cook for her and clean for, you know, all, all these various things. I'm sure she has staff for very, and so I, I, that's another part of the picture where, you know, a, we have to earn the time back, but B, we have to work uh, to separate out the advice that works for us. And so this is another thing you, you find uh, that comes up is personal productivity is it's just that it's personal. Uh, we're, we all have different personalities. We all have different constraints. We all have different situations and levels of support at work and at home. We all have a different workload, level of control, level of reward, different personalities. Some of us are introverts. Some of us are extroverts. And so not only is a lot of the advice out there bad, but a lot of it won't, uh, a lot of the advice that we can filter through this first stage that we can apply to our own life won't fit for us because, because of our personality, because of our situation. But the best advice that I've found that works for the most people really does fall into those three categories, you're right, of, of time, attention, and energy. Okay. Um, if people had to leave this podcast with one takeaway on product, a productivity tip, because yeah. I don't want to get, you know, three to, you know, here's the top 10 yeah. productivity tips and then oh, none of them stick on. with you. Yeah. Like what's the number one meta advice you have? I love your idea about intentionality, Yeah. Uh, by the way. Yeah. Like that's the root of productivity. Yeah. Is it that? Is it intentionality about how you spend your day? That uh, more than any other factor, um, the level of deliberateness and intentionality that we have and that not only that we have, but that we have within the bounds of how much autonomy we have in our role. That's a main determinant of, uh, of how intentionally we can act. Uh, well, even if we don't have control over how we spend our time, we can still choose to spend our time in a certain way. But mm -hmm. intention really is something that lies at the core of that Venn diagram. So one, one simple strategy for greater intentionality, we all kind of have a lot to manage every day. And uh, a simple intention setting ritual that I uh, personally love and do every day is called the rule of three. So uh, at the start of the day, you fast forward to the end of the day in your head and you ask yourself, by the time this day is done, what three main things will I want to have accomplished? And it's simple, but there's a, actually a lot of science behind this ritual. Uh, you know, there's a natural limit of our mind called our working memory capacity, which is just how many things we can store in our mind at one time. And we used to think the number was seven, eight items long, but the latest research shows it's around three. And you can look no further than to the culture that surrounds us to see examples of threes, good things come in threes, the third time is the charm, the, the, the celebrities die in threes, the good, the bad, the ugly, blood, sweat, and tears, uh, even a story, a sequence of thousands of events we divide into the beginning, the middle, and the end. Uh, the Olympics, 
gold, silver, bronze medals, uh, the three little bears, the three blind, I, I could, we could all go on with examples. So, you're, so your point is naturally humans uh, identify with the yeah. three. Well, we think in threes. And so we actually remember the things that we set out to do because intention is great, but also the road to hell is paved with good intention. And so the question becomes, how can we become more likely to achieve the things that we set out to do. And so three, we remember it. We internalize it. Uh, we, we actually become more likely to achieve the things that we set out to do because in choosing only three, you know, if we did three things all day, every day, we probably wouldn't have a, a job or a business after much of a period of time. Right. Uh, but the idea is these th three things are the most critical and essential that we absolutely want to accomplish. And then when a new emerge, it, it allows us to be agile as well. Cause when a new emergency arises, we can weigh the relative importance of that emergency against the three that we started the day with and determine how to prioritize things accordingly. Uh, I do. I, I love the rules so much that I do it every day, every week, and every year. Uh, I, for some reason, I've never found that monthly and quarterly views work well for me. Uh, but it, no matter the time frame, we think in threes, we can prioritize in threes and become more likely to achieve them too. So simple strategy but one that lets us stay agile, nimble, and focus on the right things and determine that intentionality uh, each and every day. So when you're setting your intentions for the year, you will just pick yeah. three top things that you want, that you, at the end of the year, if you look ahead and visualize, yeah. you, you'd be happy with accomplishing those three things. It'd be a yeah. successful year. Yeah. So the question is what three things will I want to have accomplished by the end of the year? Cause you step into the, the shoes as well as your, of your future self at the same time to kind of look back at the year that has yet to happen. And by the way, you know, I, I review these yearly intentions every single week. Uh, I keep them at the top. I, I have three personal ones and three uh, work-related ones. And I keep these yearly intentions at the Wait, start wait, wait. Chris, wouldn't that Yo. be six? Yeah, but across different contexts. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I, I think that's the key is, it, and when you set these personal intentions every day, for example, between work and home, you can choose how balanced that you want to be. And so this is, I, I think the key to getting that striving versus savoring right over the longer arc of time is how balanced do you want to be every week, every day, every year. And by the way, you know, not only do I not keep three overall and, you know, I don't blend the personal and work, um, they're always changing. And this is something that I'm, I'm continually finding is the things that I will want, because the the year end marker is constantly moving forward into the future as well and so the segment of time is kind of has has this linear progression over time so my three things are always changing you know recently they were launch a, a book into the world now the book is mostly launched and so on to the next project um but uh, that's the key i think is to realign often towards these intentions you know it's kind of like flying a plane in a way where if you, you know, if you're in Vancouver and you aim for New York and try to hit it, you'll probably be several hundred miles off by the end. If you don't constantly realign yourself to the airport mm -hmm. and uh, goals are much the same way where, and this is the, the biggest downfall of like new year's resolutions come to mind for an example, because we, 
aim the plane at, at on January 1st. And then we end up in Tokyo, uh, you know, totally back to where, wherever it is that we started. So I, I think that's another key review those yearly intentions every week and allow them to inform the weekly intentions that you set so that the over and this is the magic of productivity, right? Where the overarching goals that you have throughout the year funnel down into your weekly goals somewhat, not completely. There's not always a complete overlap, but they funnel into your weekly goals, which funnel down into your daily goals, which when you time block, uh, when you're going to work on those things, which when you choose the times of day, you're going to work on those things. Um, you constantly realign yourself to these longer term goals and become far, far more likely to make this progress over time. It's, it's, it's quite, I don't know. I find it to be honestly a, a beautiful thing because we can set the, the course for where we want to go, not only every day, but every year too. Yeah. What an amazing answer. And, um, how do you personally deal with people, coming into your environment, throwing things at you. And you're really, frankly, how do you, how do you deal with getting rid of these distractions and blocking yourself off from the world without being an asshole? (laughs) (laughs) Because I struggle with that sometimes where it's like, look, I got to get this done. I can't talk right now. And you just kind of feel like a jerk, but it's like, is, is that, you know, do I feel like a jerk? Cause I'm just single-minded. It almost Mm. feels selfish. Like, look, I don't have time for you. I got to get this done. How do you protect your time? I'll kind of come at this from a roundabout way and and give people kind of a tactic in the process. So one of the most valuable things you can do in your work ever, and this can inform the intentions that you set, this can inform everything that you do always, and it should, is get a sheet of paper, get a cup of coffee or tea, whatever your drink of choice is, get a whiskey, get a, get, you know, whatever, you know, it's, it's your life. Don't, don't let me tell you how to live it. Yeah. What's party. your drink of choice? Uh, definitely black coffee. All right. So get a black coffee and get a sheet of paper and a pen. Put your phone like somewhere else. Just always as a general rule, phones are terrible for our mental health. They're terrible for our productivity. They're just a terrible device. One of the worst things and best things ever invented. Uh, but get into this mental state where you, you can kind of be reflective about your work and make a list of every single activity you do in your work. Keep it to the work context. If you want, you can do this separately for home too, but make a list of every single activity you do in your work over the course of a month. And once you have all that out of your head and onto the paper, which is by the way, therapeutic in and of itself, uh, ask yourself if I can only do one thing on this list, day in, day out, every single live long day, which one of them allows me to make the most progress coming back to that value of progress, which is what productivity is all about. Which one of these allows me to make the most progress, the biggest difference, the biggest contribution. Uh, Then you get a second one, luckily. Uh, And so you get to pick a second one and a third one as well. And the fascinating thing is after around three, sometimes two, sometimes four, uh, very rarely five things, um, no matter the industry, no matter the person, no matter the occupation, no matter the level of autonomy or um, you know, level of knowledge work that exists in a role uh, versus you know, how, how much of, of the role is just can be done uh, automatically or outsourced in that way. You know, these three things, so let, let's 
stick with the number three are the core of what you do. They are what allow you to make the biggest progress. These are your most productive tasks. Uh, Everything left on the page, everything from coordinating your travel to uh, arranging it for workshops in whatever it might be, these tasks support your work. And if at all possible, you should delegate them. You should eliminate them. You should say no to them. And in the case of email and meetings and things that are left, you should do what you can to shrink these tasks. However, you possibly can be strategic. Uh, every minute you spend shrinking what's left on that list is a process of creating more time for the tasks that are most vital in your role. And so when you know the tasks, the activities that allow you to make the biggest contribution, um, it becomes infinitely easier to say no, uh, because you can present somebody with alternatives that you're working on instead that are truly far, far more important. And I, I think so much of saying no is, a process of becoming comfortable with the fact that we should say no to certain things because of how difficult it is. You know, so much of productivity is evaluating the relative importance of the different things that we're responsible for in our work on the fly. And so different tools let us do this. The rule of three lets us do this. Knowing what our most vital tasks are does this too. And repeat this activity. Don't repeat it every week. Don't maybe don't even repeat it every month, but repeat it when the Uh, underlying projects that comprise your work, the kind of tectonic plates that comprise your work shift or change that might lead you to reevaluate what's important. Uh, I do this, you know, before book launches, after book launches, uh, in times when I'm doing a lot of speaking, a lot of coaching, a lot of consulting. My work varies enough that I probably do this activity every three to six months. Um, But crucial, crucial information that you can have at your disposal to identify the things that actually lead you to make progress. Yeah. Having those higher values and those tasks written down and your, your core things that you do that bring more progress that, and then I think just being able to explain that to someone, you know, that would totally help um, communicate that. Yeah. And by the way, the 10 values, um, because we all vary on the 10 values in, in different amounts. The best theory of values that I've found, uh, is the Schwartz theory of values. So if you search for Shalom Schwartz theory of values test, there's a lot of different questionnaires. I think the standard one is about 40 uh, questions long where you you can really pick apart what you value. And I I think this is kind of next level productivity advice. We kind of need to focus on just staying on top of shit. And then we can, then we can, once we have uh, our work system in our hands and uh, can get to a point where we have more autonomy and make the systems that comprise our work a bit more malleable, then we can really get to the point where that work is aligned to what we value. So, you know, value again, values seem wishy-washy, but here's the 10, here's the 10 of them. And I have them in front of me here because the article is open. So I'm cheating just for people listening to the audio. I don't know these off the top of my head. If you lock me in a room again, maybe with a black coffee, I'd probably be able to write down nine and forget the most important one, of course. Uh, but, the, but there's, there's that rule of threes again, huh? That's right. Yeah. I wish there were three values, but there's 10. So the, the, the 10 values are self-direction, 
uh, is number one. So that's independent thought and action. Uh, I feel this is a value that a lot of people listening to us right now have. Um, it's something that I have. It's what drew me to productivity. Stimulation is another one. So that's excitement in our lives. Hedonism is another one. So, you know, it's pleasure for oneself. Uh, achievement is a fundamental core value. Power is another value. So it's social status and prestige. Security is another one that I feel a lot of people listening might value. So it's safety, harmony, stability of society, relationships, ourselves. Um, conformity is another one. So restraining our actions to not upset or harm others or be volatile socially. Uh, tradition is another one. Uh, benevolence is number nine. Uh, and universalism, which is one I, I have quite a bit of, uh, which is defined as understanding, appreciating, tolerating, and protecting the welfare of people and nature. Uh, I think that's something we're not connected uh, enough with. But when you do the values test, mind the levels that you have uh, across this spectrum, and then look at how you spend your time. Look at how much many of your intentions feed, you know, self-direction, for an example, H how much of how you spend your time sets yourself up for a better future. Um, how much, how much of a better future are you building? Or maybe you value security, you know, how, how much passive income are you generating? And, and so we, we can kind of evaluate how well we're doing in our life against these, these 10 basic values, which live at the core of who we are. And I think, you know, that's the magic of productivity because when we can see ourselves manifesting these values through our actions, right? That's the process through which meaning is made. And so we get a, a sense of meaning from how we spend our time too. And that's a, you know, people are always looking to find meaning, which has never made sense to me. Cause when you look at the research, meaning is something that we actually generate when we act in accordance with who we are on this deeper fundamental level. I always love the quote, uh, to have a meaningful life, do meaningful things. And then yeah. to your point, we all different, we all have different value structures and value mm -hmm. different things in our life. So those things are going to differ, you know, between yeah. people, like one might be volunteering at a soup kitchen for one person, like yeah. who has that uh, last value you mentioned about caring for the world and all that universalism. Yeah. Someone else might be security building a rental property portfolio to, to secure their, their family's future. Um, yeah. And it's a fun activity, by the way, um, to do with your spouse, you know, what align, how much alignment do you have? What do you value differently? How does that manifest it itself in, in your life? It's, it's quite fascinating. My wife and I, um, did this, um, a little while ago and it was interesting, like uh, to see the, all the ways we were aligned that we didn't really expect to be. Yeah. As you're going through the list there, I was actually just picking out, you know, ones that I value the most. And then ones that uh, my girlfriend, Christina values the most, I was just kind of picking and choosing some of them stood out to me there. That's it's similar all hedonism to, um, for you, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's all the black I, I coffee. Yeah, he, yeah. Hedonism and black coffee. There's your bio. Yeah. Is black uh, coffee yeah. a value? Cause that would be like top of the list. Oh, that, that black coffee is above all these values. It's the ultimate value. Yeah. Now, yeah. actually on that point, you have a great, uh, um, suggestion about drinking coffee, which is to drink it 
at the time that you want to accomplish the most important thing, maybe one of those things on the rule of threes. And I love yeah. that idea because I've been, I kind of learned that hack, I don't know, a couple of years ago, which is like, okay, here's the most important thing I got to get done. I've been kicking it down my to-do list day after day after day. I know I have to get it done. Leverage this black cup of coffee, sit yeah. down and do it then. Cause this is my maximum amount of energy, especially in the morning, which is what you also talk about your biological prime time. Yeah. So for me, that's early morning caffeinated, and then I'm good to go from like 6 a.m. to about 12 p.m. I can just go steady. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it, th this is the thing that always uh, you know, surprises me about caffeine consumption is drinking caffeine is basically a way of of bringing some productivity from later on in the day and bringing it to the present moment because we inevitably crash and our energy dips after everybody does unless you uh, consume caffeine vehicles that contain l-theanine which is a chemical that calms us uh, you know i write about it in, in the latest book it actually reduces the adrenaline rush we experience from uh from caffeine while reducing the cortisol the stress rush uh, that we get from caffeine as well. But it's fascinating how, you know, drinking caffeine is a way of basically borrowing a bit of energy and productivity from later on in the day. Um, and so by consuming it strategically, deliberately, uh, we can become that much more productive. Um, you know, a, a lot of folks, you know, they, they down the first cup of coffee for very first thing in the morning uh, when they're getting ready. And I always think, why are you wasting the energy on getting ready? You could do that on autopilot mode. Just drink a water and eat an apple and, you know, drink some apple cider vinegar, vinegar water. You'll probably get the same energy rush and save the caffeine until you actually will benefit from it. You know, have that bit, nice, big black co coffee, uh, before you do something, uh, critical. That's one of your three daily intentions. And it, it one caveat, by the way, for this, you know, I mentioned, take the advice that works for you, leave the rest is if you're an introvert and you're one of your three daily tasks is something that is performative. So it's a big meeting or a big presentation. You shouldn't consume the, the black cup of coffee beforehand because you may be overstimulated by the coffee. You're stimulated enough by the situation anyway. And so it might actually harm your performance. But if you're an ambivert, you know, if you're an extrovert, uh, you'll probably benefit from all the energy that you can bring to that situation. So, you know, strategically, drinking caffeine lets us take more advantage of it. Uh, alcohol is kind of similar where, you know, we can kind of, yeah, I kind of see drinking caffeine as a way that we can borrow a bit of energy from later on in the day and drinking alcohol is kind of a way of borrowing a bit of energy and happiness from the following morning. And so yeah. we have to pay the price. Uh, but you know, as always, it comes down to intention comes down to deliberateness. Um, that's the key, you know, is the thoughtfulness behind the actions that we take. Yeah. The alcohol line is funny. I, I instantly thought of that line. I hadn't heard the coffee one before. Um, but, uh, the coffee I've been drinking, uh, L-theanine with my coffee for years now. Oh, and good. It's, yeah. It's been such a hack. I actually did it yeah. before this podcast because oh, it does. It helps smooth out the jitters. Yeah. 
And for anyone who doesn't know, L-theanine is an amino acid uh, that they pull from green tea leaves. Yeah. So that's why when you drink green tea, even though it has caffeine, not as much caffeine as coffee, it, it's also balanced out by this amino acid, L-theanine, which you can take in like a powdered capsule form. Yeah. And that's what makes green tea much more of a smooth ride versus coffee, which is like a big jolt of, of quick energy, right? Well, it, it's it's basically a jolt of liquid stress. When, when you look at the the effects that it has on our body and our brain, um, uh, our cortisol production, our adrenaline production to primary stress hormones, double, you know, the, the, the levels of it in our mind. So we, we co constantly expose ourselves to this liquid stress. Um, uh, but yeah, the L-theanine capsules, I also have a, uh, ha have a container in the cupboard of them too, just like you. Uh, but most days I just have a green tea and really enjoy that. Cause yeah, you, you could basically drink. Uh, I shouldn't say I, I, I shouldn't for my own case. I, I, I can kind of basically drink as much green tea as I want and never really feel jittery, never really feel that super stressful rush. I find that I have this calm focus. And so it's the best of both worlds. Yeah. Um, that in combination, the coffee in the morning with the L-theanine in combination with fasting, like I usually yeah. wait till about 1 PM, 2 PM. I actually haven't eaten yet today and it's 3 55 PM. So yeah. I'll probably just have one big meal tonight. And I've just been like steady all day. I haven't had that big crash afternoon. Yeah. Um, and that's been a huge help for me. And the caffeine really helps blunt your appetite. And that's something I've, I've now been doing for about seven, eight years since I was, since I was 20, I think I started intermittent fasting and it's, it's just been the best thing ever. I don't even think about it now. I wake up and I don't naturally get hungry till about 12 or one. Yeah. And we, we don't have an awareness of whether we're hungry. You know, we eat based on a clock, which makes no sense. <laughs> you know, what, why should we eat? Because it's uh, 12 o'clock just because the hand, you know, the hour hand happens to be at a certain point in time, which is all made up, you know, a clock and time is just a story. Things just happen in, in sequence. And that's our way of categorizing it. it. It doesn't really make sense. You know, it makes more sense to listen to our body, which, you know, by the way, if we have stored fat on our body, perfect, you know, we can consume fat as energy. Our body has this, you know, fundamental system where we don't go into starvation mode when we don't eat. We, we, t we consume the fat that's on our own body before, well, before anything like that happens. And so, yeah, it's, um, uh, do you find you're mo more productive as well when you're, uh, Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, it's like night and day. Yeah. Even yeah. right now, I, I, you know, I usually eat around 1 PM and I didn't bring a lunch to work today, which I, I do most days. I cook yeah. the food myself. And so I didn't feel like going out to get something. And then I had this interview coming up with you and I wanted to kind of prepare for it and be dialed yeah. in. So I just, I just skipped it. And my body's gotten used to it over the years now where I can push it to 20 hours or, mm -hmm. or whatever the fast might be. But it yeah. is weird because you know, now, even, even with the fasting, just around 12, one, my body naturally gets hungry, but I know it's just because that's when I'm primed to eat. That's yeah. when I regularly eat. So my body's like, okay, it's time to eat. But if you can just deliberately push that back and get through maybe like one to two weeks of pain to get to that point, mm -hmm. yeah. it's a massive game changer because yeah. I mean, speaking of productivity, like I don't even have to think about food until like 12, one. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. And it, it, yeah, it's, it's amazing how many different factors influence our productivity when you really zoom out from it. And this is something I've found repeatedly in the research where, you know, a define, like let's define productivity. It's not just unadulterated accomplishments, achieving the things 
that we want to achieve, right? That we set out to achieve in the first place. That's what productivity is. It's, it comes down to intention, whether or not we, uh, you know, want to drink pina coladas on a beach, whether that's our intention or whether our intention is to get our inbox to zero, to hire somebody new onto our team, to close on a deal, whatever our intentions might be on a given day. And when you zoom out from that definition of productivity, you realize just how many things influence how productive you are each and every day from the, the, whether or not you set intentions to what you eat for lunch or whether you eat lunch. You know, the, one example of this is, you know, there's an incredible Indian buffet a few blocks from here. And if, you know, it's what, three, it's almost four right now as we chat. Um, if before this interview, I hit up that Indian buffet and had five heaping plates of butter chicken and a bunch of that delicious tiger beer that they have too, by God, I wouldn't be able to focus on the conversation we're having. You know, this conversation would be half as interesting and I would be doubly as sluggish. And so it's fascinating when you zoom out from productivity, everything from whether or not we set intentions to whether or not we eat five plates of Indian food for lunch affects how much we accomplish each and every day. And it really is fascinating. And I think this is, why I can never seem to run out of ideas when it comes to writing about productivity. There's always more to discover. There's always more to, to find that impacts our productivity. Everything from that deliberateness to how calm our mind is, is something that I'm finding incredibly, incredibly important, especially right now. So it really is quite remarkable. Yeah. I want to ask you about this, your latest book, um, mm -hmm. which is called how to calm your mind. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. 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 How to calm your mind. And I just doing research for this interview with you, I read this amazing quote by Naval Ravikant and I, I don't even know how it came up as I was looking up your stuff, but it was, um, inner meditation is intermittent fasting for the mind. And I was like, Oh man. Yeah. And as you know, like I'm on the fasting train for, for yeah. eating and I know how my body feels. And I was like, wow, that's an amazing quote for, for meditation. Yeah. Like, I know you're a big fan of it. Now mm -hmm. on the surface level, it's sometimes I've tried getting into it in the past. It seems hard to set aside half an hour to sit and do nothing yeah. when I have this to-do list of all this stuff, but similar to exercise, is it something that if you set aside the time for it, it'll give you more time back later on because you're more focused and you have a higher capacity to dial in on what you need to do? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because calm is kind of like productivity in this way, where when you zoom out, pretty much everything influences how calm you are. Uh, so meditation is one of the things I cover in the book. Um, but I think it's like five or six pages and it, it, it's, it, I find it to be absolutely fascinating though, the extent to which meditation can help us uh, in calming our mind and, and uh, being more present and ultimately productive. And so by that measure that we were chatting about a bit earlier, you know, how much time do we make back for every minute we spend on the meditation cushion? Well, Let's look at, you know, meditation can be one contributor to calm. I, I don't even think it's the, the, the main one, but I think it can, can be one, um, one tool that we have at our disposal. And so let's look at the connection between productivity and calm. Yeah. You know, the calmer our mind is, you know, I mentioned that stat where we can hold around three things in our mind at one time. The calmer our mind is, the more 
of a mental capacity we actually have the more our working memory increases. Uh, it increases by about 25%, which doesn't sound like a lot you know, on the surface. But what that means is when we have 10 hours of work to do, we can do that amount of work in seven and a half hours, which is absolutely incredible, right? We don't have to work weekends. We don't have to work evenings because we can bring our full attention to what it is that we intend to be doing in the moment. We become less distractible, right? Because we're not always in this threat finding mentality where an email comes in and we think, Oh my God, what, what is that? Now we can find a, a presence with whatever it is that we're with. We can really just focus on whatever it is that we're with. Uh, we also see more opportunities around us. And so this I find fascinating, where instead of looking out for the threatening things in our external environment and internal environment in our own thoughts, we see more opportunities. In fact, 31% more opportunities when our mind is calm and happy versus when we're constantly distracted and in this threat-finding mentality. Uh, we have less of an internal negative dialogue that could metastasize throughout the day. Uh, and so when you add up all of the factors that, you know, calm can bring us, especially when conditions are changing so rapidly around us. So, you know, looking at the real estate industry, it's not hard to, to name a lot of the conditions that are changing, right? That we kind of need to organize inside of our mind. We have a lot of information that we need to file away inside of our mind. And I, I think this is the one thing that meditation is especially good at. So, you know, real interest rates are up. Uh, the, no, the, the, you know, we can go hunting for deals, you know, that, that sort of thing. There's so much opportunity. There's a lot of threats to think about. There's a lot of, um, and, and that creates this internal dialogue that we have with ourselves That's overwhelmingly negative when we don't rein it in. And, and so when you add up all of the benefits that a calm mind can confer, uh, I, I think, you know, calm is, the the most essential component of productivity when we're living in in a time that is rapidly changing uh you know when when the environment around us is rapidly changing how do we have an opportunity to file the different information away when we're constantly paying attention to something instead of trying not to and so meditation is the simple practice and it's stupidly simple right because you you sit on a cushion and you mind your breath. You notice the ebbs, the flows, the, the way your breath flows in and out. And, and the breath is one of the most boring things that you can possibly focus on in the entire world. And therein lies the point. Because if you can focus on your breath, you can focus on anything, right? You can focus on a research report. You could like a re like I, I can't think of many things that are less engaging, less interesting, and more boring than the breath. And that's precisely the point, right? That's why meditation calms your mind. Because if you can find a, if you can focus on that, you can focus on anything. If you can become engaged with your breath, you can become engaged with pretty much anything. If you can find your breath interesting, right? That means there's nothing else in your mind. Because thoughts are infinitely more interesting than the breath as well, 
right? This internal dialogue that we get lost inside of research shows about 47% of the day. And so the more we're able to bring ourselves to the present moment, to what we intend to be accomplishing, the more productive we become. And calm is, I think, the primary tool that we can use to get there, meditation being one thing that contributes to it. Wow. What an amazing answer, man. The, um, the meditation idea of, of, if you can focus on that, you can focus on anything. I've never really heard it phrased like that, but that hits home because yeah, it's boring and it's incredibly uh, boring. It sucks. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> it really sucks. And by like, the way, thoughts like this will arise when you try to focus on your breath, you'll think, why am I doing this? I could be actually <laughs> making progress with things. Yes. Uh, but you are in ways you don't realize. There's a lot of ways you don't realize. Hmm. So it's something maybe you got to give some time and, and wait for the benefits to start creeping in. Yeah. And one simple strategy for this is, you know, work within your resistance level. Cause I, I mentioned that negative self-talk and we're not kind enough to ourselves when we strive to accomplish things because, you know, the very idea that we want to accomplish something or become more productive than we are implies on some level that we're not entirely satisfied with our current level of success or productivity. Um, and so one simple way of getting around this is, you know, shrink how long you'll meditate for in your mind until you no longer feel an incredible mental resistance to it. So, you know, you might think, okay, can I meditate for 45 minutes today? No way in hell. Okay. What about 40 minutes? No, definitely not. What about 30? No, it's way too much. 25? No, I don't have 20. What about 20? Yeah, I was going to watch an episode of something anyway. So maybe 20 minutes works well. Maybe I'll even do 22, which is the length of the episode. And so, you know, you shrink the amount of time that you do something for in your mind until you no longer feel that resistance. And then you meditate for that amount. The strategy works for meditation, uh, exercise, anything uh, that is aversive that you really don't want to be doing. Because uh, the fascinating thing about mental resistance to things, and this is another reason Calm is so um, critical, is it allows us to obliterate any mental resistance we have to doing certain things. But most of the mental resistance we have to certain tasks is stacked at the beginning of the timeline of that task. It's the equivalent of jumping in a cold pool, right? Where once we're in, we acclimate very quickly, but we never want to start the task. We never want to start doing bookkeeping. We never want to start sitting on the meditation. We never want to start working out at the gym, but just getting past the first few minutes, um, we can keep going on for forever. Right. And so th this is why feeling out that resistance is key. You mentioned meditation is about five pages of the whole book. Yeah. So what are some of the other big things in the book that you'd like to share just as we wrap up in the next kind oh, of 10 minutes yes. here? Okay. Let's, let, let's do kind of a rapid fire answer. So we already actually covered a, a, a decent amount of what was in the book. So, you know, this constant pursuit of more, how do we, uh, how do we savor things in our life? You know, savoring is something that's worth kind of covering briefly because there are these different styles of savoring. Um, you know, in addition to keeping a savor list, which contains all these things, so you can actively 
work out your mind and train your mind in a way that isn't on the meditation cushion. Um, there, there are styles of savoring. So luxuriating, um, I'll, I'll go through five of them. You know, if you're looking for inspiration here, uh, luxuriating is one. So think of a cat just basking in the sun. You know, we can luxuriate in an experience. We can uh, practice gratitude as well. That's a form of savoring, thinking of the things that we're grateful for in our life, uh, our family, our, uh, our success, the fruits of our success, you know, whatever makes up your own list. Every night when my wife and I are, before we fall asleep, we recall three things that we're grateful for from that day. And we don't do it every day, probably 80% of days, but the research shows what we do it because doing so trains your brain into looking for more opportunities in your life. You'll see more opportunities around you. Um, so luxuriating Thanksgiving, marveling at experiences, you know, the way we marvel at a sunset, or the, the, uh, ocean, you know, when we actually look at things, uh, in a way that calms us, when we see through the periphery of our vision, through, uh, our whole eye, that actually leads us to a calmer mind because that that's a mode that our parasympathetic nervous system, um, activates for it. Uh, the doing so actually stimulates what, what is called our vagus nerve, which calms our mind. Um, and so doing that yawning also stimulates the vagus nerve if you're ever feeling anxious, but we can even savor the past and the future. So we can savor the past by reminiscing on a memory. And so looking through old photos, recalling old memories with somebody that we love is, is, is a wonderful, wonderful way of re reliving the memory that is good and actually leads to more satisfaction and we can savor the future. You know what that's called? Uh, no, okay, it's called, well, it's called anticipation. Anticipate, yeah. yeah. So when we, when, and it counts as savoring because we do so in the present moment. Uh, so when we count down the days to a vacation, when we track our route to financial independence, when we, you know, when we anticipate things, doing this, the research shows actually leads us to enjoy something more by creating what are called effective memory traces in our mind, kind of like a path that we walk down. Uh, and then we, uh, then we walk down that path once again, when we experience the actual uh, event, and then we can reminisce on it later to, to up our savoring. Um, but, you know, in addition to that, one, one other thing that I want to mention is burnout. You know, we, we mentioned burnout at the top burnout is in the air right now because stress is in the air, uh, because anxiety is in the air. Uh, burnout is not exhaustion. You know, that's something that it would be nice if people left uh, this conversation with we we equate burnout with exhaustion but burnout is exhaustion plus two other things uh, so we need to be exhausted to be burnt out but we also need to feel cynical right have this negativity behind what we do and we also need to feel unproductive as if our actions are not making a difference um, but fortunately we can look to the different factors of our work that have been shown to lead us to a point of burnout in order to overcome it. So if you're feeling burnt out, if you're feeling some combination of exhausted, cynical, and unproductive, um, you may not be experiencing all three, but if you're experiencing one or two, 
that could serve as a stepping stone to being burnt out. So uh, minding your workload level, minding your level of control over your work and fighting for more of it, if at all you possibly can. Um, insufficient reward is another trigger of burnout. So we need to feel socially rewarded. We need to feel financially rewarded for the work that we do. That leads to more engagement and less burnout. Uh, we need a sense of community. So we need to feel connected with the people that we work closely with. Uh, fairness is the fifth factor and values is the final factor. So how deeply our work is aligned to those 10 values that we identified earlier. Uh, the research shows that these six areas are what cause burnout. And so if you're feeling exhausted, cynical, unproductive, mind these six areas of your work, because um, these are the levers that you can push on if you have the autonomy to do so, uh, to become more productive, more engaged, less burnt out. So uh, I feel we could talk for hours on, on you know, calm and strategies for it, but uh, hopefully those are a couple strategies to get started savoring and understanding burnout. Yeah. And what I really took away about burnout is like everything is connected you know, every little thing that you do matters with your productivity, with your energy levels, yeah. with your burnout levels, with your calmness. Yeah. It, it's all connected. So be hyper aware of everything. Yeah. And chart these six factors over time, right? How much stress do you experience because of these six factors, workload, control, reward, community, fairness, and values. Um, so you can chart how engaged you are over time and how, uh, how close you are to burning out. Cause it's, um, minding that threshold is critical, especially right now. And you will be more productive if you're more calm. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Okay. Chris, I love it, man. Uh, you are a wealth of knowledge in this subject. I can tell how passionate you are about it. It's it's very cool to see you you doing this stuff and putting this type of stuff out there, man. Ah, uh, thank you. Yeah. Great to be here. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, where can people learn more about you. Are you working with people right now? You have your three books. Could you name all three of your books? Everything. Yeah, for sure. So my latest book, and in my opinion, my best book uh, is called How to Calm Your Mind. Um, it's available wherever books are sold. I, I do the audiobook as well for it. Uh, the other two books are called Hyperfocus and The Productivity Project. Uh, people seem to dig those as well. Uh, they're out in 35 languages. If you speak a different language, it's probably in that one if you if you have a different preference. But uh, my website is chrisbailey.com where you can find information on all of them and uh, podcast there called time and attention that I do with my wife and, uh, just, uh, yeah, there, there you go. There you have it. Yeah. You've got a great little, uh, blog, uh, going there with, uh, with articles in bite-sized formats too. I was yeah. enjoying reading some of those. So thank you, Chris. Thank you for joining us, man. I really appreciate it. And, uh, just keep doing what you're doing, man. I, I'm a big fan. Likewise. It's so good to chat with you. Thank you for having me on. So thank you to Chris Bailey for coming on the show. I feel very grateful for the opportunity we have to speak to so many experts on various topics and to be able to share their message and hopefully help you as a listener live life on your own terms. You can check out www.chrisbailey.com to see all of his work. I know I'll definitely be following Chris's work going forward. Thanks for listening and making this podcast possible. We'll catch you on the next show.